Josephine is going to read for us this morning, and our reading is from page 1,189. My computer got what they call, um, you know, when the the word gets phased out, as I type this. It's 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. I'm starting at verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit, miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they have refused to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason... God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we always ought to thank God for you, brethren, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. I had a long discussion with Andrew when I discovered what the passage for today's reading was. And I don't think I've ever come across anything with quite so much controversial theology in it as this passage. Um... The lectionary stipulates that we read the first paragraph and the last paragraph. The middle paragraph 
is highly controversial. There are as many different opinions as to the meaning of the various parts and the details in that passage as there are theologians. I therefore do not plan to even take the lid off that middle section. It will depend very much where you've grown up as a Christian, which theologians you have read. There are some things in that passage that are as new as the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it's over a period of time that thinking over that passage has changed. And it depends on which theologians you follow as to which beliefs you accept. In the event, it's not actually, in my perception, anything we need to know too much about. And my reason for saying that is that for a formative period of my Christian life, I studied and worshipped with a group of people who have very strong views on end times theology. And it occurred to me, hang about, why are we fixated on the future? Why don't we start living for God in the present? So, that's the background to what I'm going to teach this morning. A little bit of historical information for you. This is Paul's second letter to this Gentile church in Thessalonica. And it's been written by Paul to correct some of the things he said about the same subject in his first letter. They seem to have misunderstood some of the things that he said, and they're afraid they've missed the rapture. So Paul is writing this second letter to explain that that is not the case. It's to do with their understanding of, quote, the day of the Lord. Um, the day that Messiah will return. Now, this is interesting because when you read the passage, we understand that the epistle was written by Paul, and there's a reference to the temple. Does that not bother you? When Paul was alive, there was a temple. How long did it last? Precisely. Not long. In round about in the AD 60s, thereabouts, it was demolished by the Romans. So, if Paul was referring to that temple, that means that all the things he's talking about relate to that period. Or is he looking into the way into the distant future when there might be a <gasps> third temple? Do you see that? You see, you know, as you begin to unpick this, there are an awful lot of difficulties there. Um, so, it's, these are questions that I can't answer. And I think theologians are still struggling with how to answer it. So this is one of the reasons why this is a very controversial passage. 
If Paul wrote it, then the second temple, the Herod temple, is still standing, right? If perhaps it wasn't Paul who wrote this, and there are questions in the minds of theologians as to whether Paul is responsible for this, then it could be that this is an end-time temple in, say, somewhere way down the line in the future. Can you see why I got confused, Andrew? (laughs) I hope you're confused as well, because then we're all in the same boat. But the key to this passage is vital. Paul is less concerned to provide details of the Christ's return than to reassure the Thessalonians about the ultimate fate of their brothers and sisters in the faith who have died. Right? And he's trying to say to them, well, look, they'll be all right. They'll be all right. It's interesting, actually, that Paul himself has his own opinion about all of this. And you will remember that he also wrote a letter to the church at Philippi. And there's just a phrase in the first paragraph or two, it's on the left-hand page in your NIV Bibles, um, of first of Philippians. Paul writes this, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Period. So what's he expecting? To be in limbo for 2,000 years? He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And I read in my studies that Paul, like many Palestinian Jews of his era, believed that when he, quote, departed, unquote, he would be in heaven with God and with the souls of other righteous dead. So this is Paul's position. Interesting. To depart and be with Christ. When? Not tomorrow or the next day, but straight away. That is how I understand it. So bear this in mind as we study. Um, Another phrase that comes up in this study is the phrase, the day of the Lord. There are many references in the Hebrew scriptures to, quote, the day of the Lord. And there are many things that will happen, according to the prophets, on the day of the Lord. This, remember, is Paul's background. But... What the New Testament concentrates on when it speaks of the day of the Lord is the day of Messiah's return. The day of Messiah's return. Because as believers, this is what we're looking forward to. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. And then what Andrew quoted for us. Messiah, Christ has died. Christ is risen Christ will come again. And this is what we're looking forward to. And if we die before he comes, we'll come with him.
So this is, you know, all of this is background, actually. Um, the next point that we have to deal with is the teaching in the first five verses of what Josephine read for us and the last section. Paul says, That day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul is writing this to the Thessalonians. He said, don't get worried because the day of the Lord will not come until all this other stuff happens. Like the Thessalonians, we too await with joy and expectation the coming of the Messiah. And we are told that he will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. We're still waiting, as were the Thessalonians. Right, now, if you've got your Bibles open at page 1189, we will look at the first and last paragraphs of the readings. Take verse 1 there. What's the key point in the first part of verse 1? Yes, but before the gathering, the coming, the coming of the Lord Jesus. That's the first point that Paul makes concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now, there have been a number of claims down through the centuries from both Jews and Gentiles that he's already come. That made me think that in his teaching on end times, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus pointed out that there would be many false messiahs who will stand up and say, I am the Christ, I am the Christ, I am the Christ. And he went on to say, believers must not be deceived. For Jewish people who have not yet recognized the messiahship of Messiah Yeshua. Some of these have also been uh, deceived, and -and so-and-so's the Messiah, and -and so-and-so's the Messiah, and -and so-and-so, and so it goes on. And in our own day, many Orthodox Jews await his coming with a passion that I don't have, that I've not seen amongst any of us, with a passion that is unbelievable. He may come today. And there's a DVD that's been going around among some of us of an Orthodox Jewish man called Gil and um, a a Jewish, uh, sorry, uh, an ordinary, I say ordinary, Christian lady. And Gil is obsessed with the idea that he may even come today. And we must be ready. Will he come today? Will it be today? Will it be today? And the next day comes, will it be today? Will it be today? Oh, that we had that passion. 
but we don't. We're quite happy jogging along by and large. So, just a few thoughts there for you. The second part of the verse, which you've already identified, is that Paul and the believers in Thessalonica and all those who've died in the faith up until now and we when our turn comes will, in the day of the Lord, be gathered to him. All those who have died in the faith, no matter what nationality, no matter when, believers will be gathered with the Thessalonican believers to be with the Lord. This is comforting. This is comforting. This is, this is the hope that we have. When dear Norman died, I was so conscious of the fact that he'd left our presence and was gone to be with the Lord. And I'm sure that you've seen that with various believing friends that you have had who have died in the faith. Right, verse 2. Paul goes on to talk about the day of the Lord. And he says, you shouldn't be easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us, i.e. Paul and his colleagues, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. It's tricky because there's a lot of teaching going around which could wind us up on that subject and we would be alarmed and we would be worried because perhaps we'd been left behind. It happens. It goes on. His coming will be like the day of the Lord, says Jesus. And it will come, says Jesus, like a thief in the night. Now, in parable form, if folks knew that at 3.30 a.m. a thief was going to invade the premises, what would they do? Be ready, get ready, be prepared, be prepared, you can. But we don't know because they don't tell us when they're coming. So his coming will be like a thief in the night. And it is an unexpected hour. That day had not come when Paul wrote these letters. The believers had not missed it. They had no need to be alarmed or for their faith to be shaken. And it has not yet come in 2019. One might ask, why not? And I thought to myself, well, yeah, why hasn't he come yet? Why all this long time? And the Apostle Peter faced that question. And in his second letter, he spends a paragraph writing about that. And this is what he says. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, wait for this, not 
wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God, in his grace, extends the time because he doesn't want anyone to fail to come to him for salvation. I was so glad about that because it it occurred to me as a question. And the second part of that quotation is as follows. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this is Peter's take on it. Why has he not come? He's waiting. Maybe, I don't know, maybe there's someone here who has not yet given their lives to the Lord. We're thinking about And what is this day of the Lord or day of God? There are various interpretations in one of my favorite study books, which I will commend to you. It is a Jewish annotated New Testament. People who really know the Tanakh background to the New Testament scriptures. And there are various suggestions there as to what the day of the Lord in the Tanakh would have referred to. But as I've already said, New Testament writers associate it specifically with the day of the return of the Messiah. What does verse 2 have to say us? We talked about that, haven't we? Don't be alarmed. Did you hear that? What did it say? Don't be alarmed. This happened, this being alarmed, happened in the first century. It still happens today. People are obsessed with the return of the Lord. When I worked in Castle Books, there was a series of books that were printed. I think the author may have come from across the pond. And it was called the Left Behind series. Do you know, we couldn't get enough copies. And they grabbed the one and they come back the next way. Where's part two? Where's part two? And there were ten in the series. Can you imagine how much money the author must have made? But this is the panic situation. Left behind, we're obsessed with it. And what are we going to do for those who are left behind? What do you think of that? Bear in mind, do not be deceived. Just be ready. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Verse 3. How can we be sure that the day has not yet come? This individual, although, as was pointed out to me by my brother, may even now be alive, who knows, he has not been revealed. And the colossal rebellion against all things to do with God has not yet actually happened. There has not yet either been a worldwide persecution of Christians. The church 
has not yet come under severe pressure everywhere all at once. At the time when Paul wrote, the church was under pressure in Rome, and some, there are some commentators who even think that this man of lawlessness may have been one of the Roman emperors. Um, more than one of them set themselves up in the temple to be claiming to be God. And even before these letters were written, Antiochus Epiphanes set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem claiming to be God. But they've all come and they've all gone. And it hasn't happened yet. So don't panic. That day has not yet come. Paul is not too interested in the details. He gives us a brief thing here. He says that this, whoever it is, will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming to be God. In our day, and in the end times, that has not yet happened. There are people who would disagree with me, but that's how I read it. The lectionary readings then proceed to write personally to these believers in Thessalonica, telling them how they should behave in the meantime. Well, we're still in the meantime. And so what Paul writes to these believers in Thessalonica all those centuries ago is appropriate for us. And I'm going to read those verses again to you. From verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And then he continues with the blessing. Well, I thought I'd finish with the difficult stuff until I got to this. We always ought to give thanks for you to God, brothers beloved by the Lord. Well, this is the first thing to pay attention to. Beloved by the Lord. And not just them in Thessalonica, but who else? Us, Lord. We are beloved by the Lord. Wow! Because God chose you. Ah. Oh. Predestination? Free will? Oh dear, I thought I'd finished with the minefield. Predestination or free will? I was, again, very helpful, very, very thankful for the help I got from a couple of my reference books. And this is what I read, and I will read it to you as I copied it. God chose them from beginning, the beginning for salvation or to be saved. Not predestination, as some modern theologians have taught it, Calvin, for instance. 
In the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel was referred to as chosen. And the Lord in, I think it's in, maybe in the, I'm not sure, I didn't look up the reference, but God says, I chose you, not because you were the greatest of nations, but because you were the smallest and the weakest. Israel was chosen. And the ingrafted Gentiles are also spoken of as chosen. Romans 9, verses 14 and 15. Whilst God has the right to choose whom he will, Israel and Moses were chosen unconditionally, but all depends on the response given to the call. This is important. It depends entirely how, when the gospel is presented to whoever, it depends entirely, God has done his bit, it depends entirely on how the individual responds to the choice. And that's as close as I could get to an explanation, but it's true. God makes the offer, the offer is in unconditioned to ever, whoever hears it. He waits to see how people will respond. And for those who do respond positively, the outcome is really quite amazing. But there are other things to unpick there, first of all. These who have responded, God has a purpose. They were sanctified. Do you realize that? Why else does Paul write to the saints here and the saints there and the saints somewhere or other else? They're not in stained glass windows. They're living people. It means, sanctified means set apart. Believers are set apart, made holy, or set apart by the Holy Spirit. And when you're born again, the Holy Spirit gives you birth. And you are therefore set apart for God. And that's a here and now state for all believers. And what was the qualification? They believed the truth when it was offered to them. They believed the truth that was presented. It's the only qualification that you believe the truth. And receiving the Holy Spirit as you confess your faith in Jesus, you are set apart by God. To this he called you, verse 14, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That set me back for a while, and it was several days before I got some insight from the Lord, I'm sure, as to what this might mean. So will you turn with me to Romans chapter 8, please? Romans chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 28. This is page 1135. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, 
who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, bear in mind what I've said, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. And here's the punchline. And those he predestined, he also called. And those who called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Um, looking forward to the future here at the here and now? I don't know. But we will share the glory of the Lord Jesus. And that was the insight that I received. And I'm sure that this is what Paul was expecting, that I might be with Christ in the glory, which is, as I understand it, the outcome for each individual believer as they die, until the, some call it the rapture, comes. I don't propose to talk about rapture and so forth. It's too controversial. Right, so... In the light of all that information, what are we supposed to do? We're back to Thessalonians again. Verse 30... Oh, I can't see properly. Verse 15. So then, brothers... What does it say? You read it. So then, brothers... Right. Keep going. You dried up. Never mind, I'll read it for you because I've copied it off. So then, brothers, stand firm. What are you supposed to do? Stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul is claiming authorship for this. So what are the teachings or the traditions? Well, In Judaism, at that time, it was considered very important by the rabbis, Jesus was a rabbi, Rabbi Jesus, to hold fast to the teachings and traditions taught by the rabbis. So Paul, as a follower of Rabbi Jesus, is holding fast to the traditions and practices and teachings of Rabbi Jesus. And he is commending those teachings to the folks in Thessalonica. So what are we supposed to be doing? Holding fast to the teachings of Rabbi Jesus. Blow the rest of the stuff that comes crowding into us from all sorts of directions and gets muddled up on on the way and gets changed and becomes controversial and we can't be doing with it, can we? Um, Hold fast to the teachings and traditions handed down to us from the Lord Jesus. This is most important. So these young believers were told to stand firm and hold fast to what they've been taught. Andrew says, I've got five minutes left. That just about do. (laughs) As followers of the Lord Jesus, 
we have a responsibility to stand on the word of God. And as the Lord reveals to us the way ahead for our church family, we should test the words that we receive and act accordingly. Remember the testing, it's important. And now comes the blessing. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, God's riches at Jesus' expense, words of praise and gratitude to the Lord Jesus himself and to God the Father for this amazing grace that he's poured out upon us upon Paul, upon those believers, upon all believers. Eternal comfort and good hope. Now, I need to make a point there. Hope, oh, well, goodness, I hope it doesn't rain too much tomorrow because I want to put the washing out. This is not hope. This is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is the assurance. It is not what we use the word normally for. So don't be thrown by that. Comfort your hearts and hang about. You're not going to get off it lightly. Comfort your hearts and establish them. What does it say? In every good work and word. I've got ESV translation. You'll appreciate that, yes. This is the ESV translation because I can copy and paste when I'm doing the preparation but be established in every good word and work. So we're to be up and doing, and we're to speak the words. How apt we are to speak the words that we are given. And this reminds me of something that's quite often a prayer of mine. May the words of my lips and the meditations of my heart be acceptable or pleasing in your sight, O Lord. By the way, the heart doesn't, uh, it it goes tick, tick, tick. Well, that's not the heart where scripture's concerned. Heart is that part of your being where decisions are made and words and actions flow from it. So, may we be walking in that way in the Lord. And we are to be working and we are to be speaking Is this not so apt for where we're at as a church at the moment? So, brethren, beloved, chosen and sanctified, hold fast to what you were taught. Share the gospel and live it out until he comes.